Hello and welcome to this week's Halloween-themed episode of Movie Magpies. I am your camp counselor, as always, here at Camp Crystal Lake, Will. And with me is a possessed Furby from the year 2002, Monique. Anyway, we're talking about Beetlejuice. Let's get straight into it. Oh, that'd be funny. Honestly. I'm a Furby! <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, small, For those... slightly possessed, <laughs> a little unhinged. It works. For those who listened to last week's episode, that's for you. That was a little Easter egg. Yeah. But yeah, we're talking about Beetlejuice warning for suicide humor because that's one of the most prominent things that we noticed. And also just warning for depictions of death because it's a film about ghosts, people. Yeah, there is a lot of talk or thought into death and what happens after you die. Yeah. So if that makes you uncomfortable, maybe sit this one out. Yeah, but of course, spoiler warning because we're going to just talk fully about this film. Uh, if you haven't seen the film but you're happy for it to be spoiled, Monique, what is the summary for what this film is? Because a summary is such a spoiler. That's a good start though. The Netflix summary is a young couple who drowned return to their house as ghosts, but must enlist the help of a goofy ghost to put a scare in the rude new owners. Yeah, pretty bog-standard kind of summary, really. Yeah, this is the heart of the film, but gets the general gist down, which I suppose you want people to watch the movie to get the heart of the film, yeah. so it makes sense. And I think for a film that came out in 1988, a lot of people are either watching this film, they love this film, or they're going to be introduced to this film at some point in time. I think watching Beetlejuice is inevitable. Yeah. But yeah, some people may not have seen it yet, that's okay watch it it's really fucking good watch it around halloween it's even better uh we there's no debate really as to whether or not we enjoy it i think we both really enjoy it exactly and it's iconic like the mm. black and white thick stripes with lime green on it that itself is a very iconic thing yeah. that has been linked to beetlejuice forever so if you haven't watched this i'd be incredibly surprised actually yeah, it's an incredibly recognisable trait. But you had a question. I remember you asking about just straight up the name. I the was going to ask that question. So, obviously, Beetlejuice is the way that it's spelt on the cover. But it's spelt more like Beetlegeuse on yeah. everything inside the film. Why yeah. is that? So, yeah, I do have the answer to that. I remember telling you that I had the answer to that, but also not telling you what it is. Yeah, because I said, no, 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 leave it for the podcast, William. It's content. Yeah. So, basically, the the poster and cover art of the film being written as Beetlejuice, as in beetle and juice, the orange, orange juice and the small insect, came about because originally the film publishers believed that people wouldn't understand how to read that. More specifically, Americans would not be able to understand what that word read. They would probably well. say Beetle Guys, as joked in the film. Mm -hmm. It was changed to Beetlejuice on the cover to alleviate that. Some people know what Beetle Guys is. Beetle Guys is Beetlejuice, but it is based on the star, the, the sun. Star? Yeah, um, in in our solar system, there is a star known as Beetlejuice. It is, I think, 20 times bigger than our sun. That's a pretty dang big star. Yeah, but you don't come here for astronomy. You come here for film. <laughs> so, I, mean, I not... come here for both. Yes. Well, uh, anyway, so that's why they changed it 
on the front cover. It's pretty much a, the same kind of thing as the Sorcerer's Stone and the Philosopher's Stone for Harry Potter, where it was changed right, to Sorcerer's okay. Stone because they because American publishers did not believe that Americans would know what a philosopher was. Okay, so it's more a legibility thing than anything. Yeah, and what a way to dunk on an entire country, really. God, could you imagine being the country that made the entire title of the film change the spelling just because they thought you wouldn't get it? That's yeah, rough, buddy. That is pretty rough. Anyway, now that we know that, let's get into the more meat of the film. So we should probably start with characters, talk more uh, specifically about each character. And uh, Yeah, we had a bit of a chat um, yeah. in our review about the characters. But really, I wanted to get more of a distinct first thoughts that you had of the characters, really about their opening scenes and how it conveyed them as a character from the get-go. I think that's a really good idea. Well, I think the first two characters that we see on screen are Barbara and Alex. Alex? Mm -hmm. Adam. Barbara and Adam, the maintenance. (laughs) I don't know why I just went along with that. I was like, yeah, "Yeah, Alex sounds good. Yeah, and for them, I think they are very easily endearing. They're two characters who don't necessarily like to get out much. They're two characters who I think everyone can kind of maybe relate to, maybe less so these days, because I think we all want to not be at home quite as often anymore. But they're Mm. two... Oh, right, yeah. But... (laughs) two characters who are very happy within their own little world and I think that makes them immediately likeable. They're two characters who aren't necessarily antisocial, that's for sure, but they are comfortable within their lives. And it really is picturesque in a way, the way that they are introduced. They're setting up Mm. for a vacation in this house that they seem to have just bought. They're more than happy that it's a house that doesn't get a lot of visitors. They have to go down to the hardware store and the lad, the barber that's sitting outside of his barber shop starts trying to talk to Adam as he runs into the hardware store. Yeah. And Adam just full on, oh yeah, how you doing? That's good. Walks away from him, gets what he needs to, and then comes back out and goes, I've got to go. Nice talking to you. And it's just so... What I like about that scene is it gives... Yeah, it gives the impression that they've been in this area for a while, that they're comfortable even with the people in the town but to a point where they're not necessarily sick of them but they're so used to them that they know how to avoid them yeah so used to them that they know how not to get wrapped up in something that'll take them forever to get away from which is really speaks to me on a deep level (laughs) as someone who hates small talk (laughs) i think they're so aware of the small workings of the town and the inner workings of the town that they have gotten past the formality of politeness with many of the residents of the town. It's almost like the residents of the town see them as the quaint, polite little couple that lives up the hill, and they no longer have to actually be quaint and polite. They just have to smile and wave, and everybody's like, oh, it's just them being cute, you know? Yeah, exactly. And as a result, they do come across as very likable and a sweet couple. I think they work incredibly well together they appear almost perfectly as a as two parts of a whole and not saying that either one of them is less than a whole person i think they're two whole people that make a whole collective couple 
and I think they really complement nice each other incredibly well. Yeah. And it's very, very refreshing, especially, I think I said this in the review as well, in that sort of times of the 70s and 80s where a lot of couples were played up for laughs as, oh, I hate my husband, he never does anything, oh, I hate yeah. my wife, she got less and less pretty the second that I married her, to this cute little quaint couple that is just so wrapped up in each other that they could care less about the rest of the world. Yeah. It's really, really refreshing and lovely to see, and it endears you to them straight away because you feel wrapped up in their little corner of joy that they've made for themselves yeah. as the film starts. It does really epitomise and then go beyond the, the term till death do us part, honestly because mm -hmm. these two are married and then they continue to just continue to be with each other and stay with each other even after the trauma of dying. Yeah, and it's that sort of vibe of, oh, I could stay with you forever yeah. in this little house. And then that's exactly what they do, Yeah, which they're just so cute. Yeah, it's completely believable that they would actually be a married couple. And, of course, I said this in the review, but Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin play a an incredible part in this because they have just such good chemistry with each other and working with each other to make this so believable and so likable in that you like both individuals and then you like them as a couple too. They wouldn't be so good as a couple if they didn't have such good chemistry and that really is up to the actors. You can write that a couple is in love so much as you want in the script but if yeah. the actors don't have good chemistry it's just not going to read so it really truly is a wonderful performance by our, our two actors. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what happened there? <laughs> I tried to get fancy. <laughs> and yeah, even, but then we get to the point after death, and their relationship relationship still remains quite consistent in that they're constantly looking out for each other, and it lends to this presence that for them death was just another chapter in their marriage. And exactly. Dealing with what comes after it is just another aspect of their marriage and they continue and with the idea that they both are comfortable living in this house alone and away from everyone the idea of just being stuck in the house doesn't come across as a fate worse than death or hell for them it actually is quite appealing to them I think Barbara even mentions they're like oh stuck in the house for all eternity and Barbara's like it wouldn't be so bad if the vacuum cleaner wasn't in the garage because yeah. they can't go to the garage because it technically counts as outside the house and yeah. it really just epitomizes how they would just stay forever in their little house in their own little corner even though they're dead but there's dust everywhere and that's annoying like <laughs> yeah absolutely it's like they're in life their worries were so small and even in death their worries are still so small and of I course think... they are made bigger by the presence of a new family coming into their home and mm -hmm. moving in but for them i think they handle adversity so well together that because of that their worries are that small that there's dust around the house and things yeah like that. exactly and it's that sort of thing of all right we're dead but at least we're still together. Yeah. God, I wish I could clean the house. And it's just so wholesome, and it really helps push that theming of this movie being quite lighthearted, even though the subject is quite dark. It yeah. really does help that they're just such a unit that they're like, all right, we're dead, but we're still a couple, and we're mm. still going to act like a couple. I think really even... There's only, what, one or two times in the entire film that they're not together, yeah. and that is... 
initially when one of them tries to walk outside the house and it doesn't go well. Yeah. And when Ortho gets a hold of the Book of the Dead or yeah, Book of the Recently Pretty much when they're separated at the end. Yeah, and summons one of them before he summons the other one. It's never of choice, yeah. really. Yeah, they never outwardly go out of their way to be apart. And I, th- I do find that really wholesome. Yeah, and when they were going out of their way to be apart in the very start, it's because he's like, oh, I'm just going to look outside and figure out if any what's going on. Yeah. And he steps outside and ends up in the, like, big worm area. But yeah, the, the sand. Sand worm. Oh, well, I think Beetlejuice says that it's Jupiter. Really? Yeah, he says the sandworms are... Well, I think it may have even been a, a um, news article in one of the papers that it's sandworms of Jupiter, but... Oh, yeah, it's on the newspaper that he's reading when we first meet him. But yeah, I find that a really interesting and also lends really good credence to the fact that the film just never takes itself seriously, Mm -hmm. in that there are sandworms on Jupiter, and that's where ghosts go to when they leave their place of haunting, which I find very strange, but also really funny. And a bit of fun. It's very funny. It's very zany. It's very out of left field. Incredibly not what you're expecting, which really, really works for this film. This film is definitely, uh, oh, and it's a horror movie, so this is what's going to happen next. Well, technically, but, like, you never really, unless you've seen the film multiple times and are incredibly obsessed with it, like I am, you're never really aware of what's going to happen next because. It's just not taking itself too seriously. It doesn't feel like it has to hit the beats of a ghost movie. It's just like, yeah, yeah. they're ghosts. They're having fun zany times. Yeah, it's very wacky and out there, and as a result, just is so easy to watch. But with the couple thoroughly analysed, maybe we should talk move on. to death. Yeah, talk to death. Maybe we should talk about Beetlejuice. A Beetlegoose? Yeah, him. He's very iconic. I think everybody, at least a little bit, knows his black and white striped suit, like I said at the start, and his weirdly lime green hair. Yeah, exactly. He's almost something that's used in themes, whether it be a drawing theme or a theme for, like, a journal, or everybody always seems to rotate back to... Beetlejuice in some way during Halloween. He's just oh look at me, I'm wearing a black pinstripe suit and my hair is green. Must be Beetlejuice. Like it's such a lovely iconic visual and I I think that is part to the costuming. Yeah and I have no doubt that it's probably really comfortable to wear as well because it looks like a comfortable suit honestly. Yeah it's not a stiff suit. It seems almost stretchy in a way. Yeah Absolutely. But as we're talking about Beetlejuice, I think it's probably really good to start with just when we first see him. And I think that it's in an ad, isn't it? It's not in an ad. So the first time... Oh, when we see him proper? Yeah, see him proper. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. I thought you were going to say when his first appearance on screen, which we don't actually see him. We just see the newspaper with the Jupiter worms on it. Yeah. It's like a paperclip ad. Yeah. And it's really sets you off right for how he works as a character yeah. that he's self-aware almost in the film yeah but he's also, he yeah he also presents himself in a way because there is this really the overarching themes of the world of the dead is that it's almost a bureaucratic kind of red tape filled office life after death mm-hmm. and beetlejuice is just a subcontractor 
in this world. And that's that's yeah. what he appears in in newspaper ads and is trying to advertise himself. He's he's like a uh, I don't want to say private detective, but that's the same kind of uh, vibe that you're vibe. getting. Yeah, but it's he's like a freelance subcontractor for people where they if people don't want to pay or can't pay full price for certain things then they go to the newspaper and find someone for cheaper you know back then yeah exactly and I, I find beetlejuice is very much this kind of guy where you also you know and expect that corners are going to be cut and that maybe not everything's going to be up to code or up to the rules but it'll get done Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, you want these people out of your house? Awesome. I'll get them out of my house. No violence? Sorry. Didn't hear that. Like, definitely a, I will help you with your issue. Yeah. And I will get it done quicker than the bureaucrats could. Yeah, But, but it's you... not going to be pretty. It's yeah. definitely going to be a bit of a botch job. You may not like it and the end result may not be better necessarily. But you'll get what you want. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that really gives Beetlejuice a very interesting amount of depth within the film in that he also indicates that he's been alive for a very long time but you can never really pin down how long he's been alive or when he died necessarily and it adds to this mystery about him that is more throwaway but really gives his character a bit of zest that is just really delightful to watch yeah, he's not just an enigma, he's an incredibly ridiculous enigma mm. in the fact that he's a roadblock and a menace to both the antagonists and the protagonists in the movie, Yeah, which really makes you go, who even is this guy? Where did he come from? And he's like, oh, I've been doing this longer than you've been alive type of thing. Yeah. But he's also so modern. A lot of his references and a lot of the jokes that he makes that are more self-aware are modern and so it feels like he's incredibly adaptable because he's like a little cockroach he has to be adaptable to survive and as a like counter to that a positive counter to that or I guess a good not contrast but yeah to that is that the things that are so consistent about him are pretty timeless as well Mm -hmm. in that he's a sleaze and he'll always be a sleaze and that's a pretty timeless concept across it but he's also like he's kind of a sleazy dealer and salesman basically but all of that stuff can be translated back thousands of years hundreds of years and then to this very day and that's what makes his character so not endearing but definitely likable i think you don't necessarily hate Beetlejuice as a character and I think it's because he remains both universal and then also adaptable. He makes you uncomfortable at Oh yeah, times, sure. But you're always so enraptured by him. He's never grating. He's never yeah. frustrating. It's just like He's not a character what you hate. What the heck is he doing now, you know? He's almost like you just can't look away. He's just so yeah. intriguing. Like he's so weird and he's a little creepy. He's very sleazy. He makes you a little uncomfortable, but you're still yeah. like. But he's also quite he's goofy. What is his fun. deal? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, of course, Michael Keaton does that so well, and he plays his character so well to a point where you are almost certain that that you believe that Michael Keaton must have had a great time playing this character. Gosh, he must have had so much fun. Oh yeah, and it translates perfectly onto screen where he's just this character who's 
dancing about being an idiot, being a sleaze, being a salesman, but he's still really fun to watch. And he's never not fun to watch. No, he's always the biggest and brightest part of a scene. If he's in the scene, he is the main focus of the scene. He really does just take up the space and make it his own. And that is, of course, because the character himself is like, hey, 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 look at me, I'm good at what I do. You should hire me. Oh, look, 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 over here, flashy, flashy. But it's also just, in general, such a charismatic... I know we just said that he's sleazy and uncomfortable. He's still so charismatic. Like, he just takes up space and you can't do anything but pay attention to him. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that what makes him so interesting as well is that he is not avoidant of consequences like most antagonists would be, in that they aim to avoid risk or or the consequences of their own actions as much as possible. Beetlejuice doesn't care about the consequences and will take them on, as can be seen with the very end of this film where he's, where to better his own gain, he steals the, what are they called? The checking tag at the ghost-like office. Oh, yeah, the number slip. Yeah, the number and slip. And his is like one million and he sees the guy next to him is four, so he switches them around yeah. because he doesn't really care that his head gets shrunk. Yeah, he exactly. to go first. And it's such an interesting and fun addition to his character that he doesn't care about the consequences. He gets his head shrunk and then he's like, oh, this is actually a pretty good look for me. And, yeah, and I suppose that almost... And you assume he just keeps going with his life helps lean into the fact that he is in fact undead in a way i suppose he doesn't look dead in the same way that the other characters look dead either he looks almost undead because he's got like the dirty sort of yeah almost like like he's rotting away basically won't come off him and he's sort of rotting a little bit yeah and it is a bit grody it's yeah absolutely actually but it's it really works for his character and i think the fact that he doesn't care about the consequences really leans into this and his visuals lean into it of like the i've been dead ages what are they gonna do to me you know yeah exactly and he's been dead so long he hasn't been exercised which for this film is a fate worse than death or the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen to a ghost is they get exercised and then they're stuck in a space of exorcism which is just nothingness it's pretty much just death for ghosts death for ghosts yeah and that i also find really nice is that they set up a ultimate consequence for the characters and there is still a believable consequence for them it's not like if they fail at what they're doing nothing's gonna happen necessarily or they don't reap the benefits of their efforts there is actually a genuine consequence that could be met by any of the ghost characters in this film. And I really like that because it actually adds stakes to the film while still maintaining yeah. that the film is a fun addition and, well, a fun thing to watch all the It way helps through. because it means that as you don't get bored because you can't lean back on, well, they're dead, what's going to happen to them? Mm. But it's also not so much of a threat until Ortho uses that summoning ritual yeah. in the movie that you are constantly worried that it's going to happen. But with with the mention of Ortho, I think we should jump onto him quickly and talk about him because he's such an interesting character. Yeah, I think he's just a he's a weird idiot and I like he that. He is. Because, he is yeah. the most likable 
of the unlikable characters, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I because he's got such a personality to him and he doesn't really until the end when he takes the book for the recently deceased mm. he doesn't really play that big of a role in the yeah, antagonism no. yeah he he has very little value to the consequences of the film until he gets the book of the dead at which point he suddenly knows everything about ghosts and of course because he just read a book on the recently deceased yeah. and he immediately uses it for his own gain and it has horrible horrible consequences and i think it's still a believable depiction of a character who is clearly not necessarily the brightest but also we've been given evidence that this book is not very clearly defined or clearly written out it's written in a way that you would write a 1980s computer manual and so yeah. it comes across as confusing and dense and as a result though he's not necessarily stupid it makes ortho seem dumber yeah because he reads it and he starts this ritual and then yeah. goes i don't know i don't know how to finish it like that wasn't a part of this chapter which is in fact really interesting to me because it's something that happened to our couple as well to barbara and adam yeah. where it is adam right yes yes it is. okay to Barbara and Adam where they go to get help in the underworld and they take their ticket and they realize they didn't bring the book with them and yeah. one of the first things that their caseworker asks them is did you even read through the whole book before you asked for help and they're yeah. like oh, no it was confusing we didn't know what was going on so we came here for help and he author almost does the same thing he just reads the parts that he thinks is relevant to him yeah. or we assume so we never actually see him reading the book but he knows how to do the ritual but not how to stop it so yeah. you assume he only read the bits that were relevant to him and mm. in turn comes off looking like a bit of a fool because of it yeah absolutely and i do like that in that no character is necessarily stupid in this film but with given context that we are provided with you see them at their least ideal. Yeah, and, you see yeah. them uh, make some of their worst decisions yeah, in the movie, in the context of the film, yeah. which is good that they don't just do that for the antagonists like Ortho, they also do it for the couple and for yeah. Lydia. Characters make mistakes, they have consequences in this film, and the consequences, the consequences have weight, but not to a point where people suffer untowards or unnecessarily and I think that's really good because in real life you'll suffer consequences that don't necessarily ruin your life but will make things a little annoying for a while and I think I like that a lot and yeah. especially in a film that doesn't take itself so seriously is great. Exactly not everything or every choice that you make or every mistake that you make is going to completely rewrite the path you're taking in life. Yeah. But it may stop you in your tracks for a little bit. It may delay progress. Yeah, and I think we'll, we can jump across to the Dietzes, so we'll talk about them as a collective too, because they're an interesting dichotomy to the Maitlands, as they kind of seem like a couple who are together, but are more ideally viewed as separates. They're together because it was almost... It feels like they're together because it was fiscally appealing yeah. rather than because they're actually romantically involved. Yeah. For instance, something that the... Oh, what's the dad's name? Charles? Yeah. 
Charles Dietz does is he comes to this place and he's like, oh, we're out in the quaint little town. I love it here. This is going to be so relaxing. And he almost over pushes that he's so yeah, relaxed. He's, he's so, he's yeah, supposed he's almost to be. so like by the book. Yes, I'm going to enjoy this and this is how I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to follow all the stereotypical ways to enjoy being out in the country and not doing anything. And as a result, he seems almost like a storm mannequin that's been given life. and then Or almost like he's trying to push that he's relaxed when he's actually not. And I feel like that's also how these two approach their marriage is, oh, we're together and we love each other and it's great, but they're mostly together because she's a pretty well-known sculptor or well-known-ish. We never really get to know the scope of that outside of the movie. Relatively famous. And he is a rich businessman, so it just seemed right that they would get together. Yeah, and as a result, neither one of them has a improved standing in their relationship. Outside of it, sure, they're two people, but within it, they're kind of just two people that kind of seem to tolerate each other. Yeah. And Delia definitely is a character who wants to take up the spotlight and be the most seen and strives for the most attention, but... What I find really interesting is she's a character who is very clearly not liked or well appreciated by anyone in her life. Even when she's in a group of socialites that seem yeah. to be her friends, she says, these are my friends, don't embarrass me in front of these people. Yeah, Her friends seem... are much more interested in what her stepdaughter has to say yeah. than anything that she's saying. She makes it... a couple jokes and laughs. And the room goes dead silent. It's almost like no one really, truly likes her and are only yeah. friends with her because her husband's rich and she has sway. She has sway and she's kind of famous. And as a result, they're kind of hangers-on for her. Yeah. But in a way that they almost still only just tolerate her. And that's a quite depressing kind of depiction of, of friendships in this world in that they're only kind of hanging around with her for her notoriety or renown and her husband's wealth. But even then, they're just like, oh, God, this woman. And she kind of appears as more of a happiness sponge than anything else. And that's really... She's definitely yeah. more of a time sink, something yeah. that they feel is a chore, something that they have to maintain, than something that they... Like a friend that you want yeah. to go and see. And it would be, and it would be really quite depressing in a film that took itself more seriously and it's great that it's in a film that doesn't because it comes across as funny and is done in such a humorous way that you don't end up feeling sorry for her for her or feeling pity or that she's a pitiable sad kind of individual you kind of are just like oh yeah she's annoying as fuck but it's also kind of funny and then of course she does have a change at the end where both families do come together and they're more cooperative with each other and you would assume that she has this growth that she doesn't end up being quite as irritating as a person in the end which is nice because she almost instead of making sculptures and being like my sculptures are the be all end all she almost starts seeing herself as 
more of an artist. Like she almost yeah. leans more into the art side of it than the I'm famous and my sculptures are famous side of it, which yeah. is really interesting to see because at the end she's actually making what looks to be an unpainted version of the snake head that they use for when yeah, the beetle juice turned into head. a snake. Yeah. And she shows it to the husband and goes, what do you think of this one? And he sort of like screams and like yeah. faint. And she goes, he likes it. And then continues working. So it's yeah. not like everybody's opinion isn't the be all end all anymore for her yeah. is sort of the vibe that you get. Yeah. And you could probably chalk it up to trauma on his side because Beetlejuice did almost kill him. Yeah. And yeah. But I think it's also a perfect. Also, he wasn't expecting about. to have a giant scary face shoved in. No, of course not. I think we can talk about. Lydia at this point because I think she's she for me was definitely one of my favorite characters because one she's played by Winona Ryder which is easy to make her a favorite because she's great but also she's such a such an enjoyable character who kind of bridges the gap between the living and the dead couples and then it and the story becomes more about bridging between the living and the dead between these two couples through the medium of Lydia, a girl who can see the dead and can also communicate with the dead. And it's great. I really like it. And I really like her because she's doomy and gloomy, but then also very much still a whole person as well. She's not just a goth kind of stereotype with nothing beyond that two-dimensional part. No, she really, truly is her own character and yeah. in her own right. They don't just use her as, oh, she's the dark and gloomy teenager, so of course she's the link between worlds. They really, truly flesh out the fact that, yes, she's dark and gloomy, but she is also kind and really yeah. warms up to these ghosts in a way that you're not expecting. Most mm. people would be like, oh, ghosts. And they'd either be like, oh, this place is haunted and we have to do a seance. Or they'd run screaming, where she's more like, oh, you guys just look like a normal couple. Are you okay? What happened? Yeah. Which really helps make her a person in her own right. It really does humanize her. And I think the writing does a really good job of that, for sure. But with, yeah, with that said, the writing, the writing of these characters is so incredibly well done that characters feel believable and they're given enough depth for them to stand alone as three-dimensional characters even side characters have that three-dimensionality to it but with that said we should probably talk a little bit more about the intentional design of this film so, i actually wanted to ask you on intentional design yeah. or just through lines in this film you mentioned the rule of three being in this film rule of three yeah so the rule of three is basically so in filmmaking the rule of three is a term used for film aspects or storyline aspects that are introduced if they are important they will be brought up three times within the film and that imply that gives the audience enough time to recognize that these are important this is an important thing and then going forward see it as either a Chekhov's gun or see it as a story foundation or even as a teaching within the film that will be brought up in the end or will become the basis of the entire film almost a little foreshadowing in a way yeah not a hundred percent but yeah in in this film however the rule the th rule of three that i'm actually talking about is a little different in that in the spirit world they always go in threes or do things in threes so beetlejuice beetlejuice third his name goose 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 yeah <laughs> and 
a lot of the spirit world stuff is operated on a rule of three where yeah. it has to be repeated three times and I just found that really interesting because in filmmaking that's also a rule but mm. I don't think they're necessarily linked but I want to be hopeful and think that they maybe are because that it would be just, quite cool well, everything else in this movie is so intentional so you feel like that would be a pretty intentional link of the rule of three I do know yeah, the rule of three so. also comes up a lot in uh, supernatural happenstances yeah, I think it has well. a supernatural meaning to it. So it might just be a nice little easter egg that it is also a, a film rule, but it's super interesting to see how they brought that up and obviously we're all very very aware of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Goose, 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 yeah. but like what else are you going to do? Like it's it just it's so iconic now that everything is done in threes. But with the rule of three it does actually bring up a really good point that so much of this film is painstakingly designed in a way that makes the film so well put together. The set design we've talked about in the review is incredible. The costume design, the makeup, all that stuff is really incredibly well done. But there is so much in this film that lends to the idea that so much more thought and painstaking theory had been put into this that it leads to being a film that is structurally well put together while still being fun and rewatchably fun. It's definitely for years something to come. that you can rewatch multiple times without getting sick of it. Yeah. And that is demonstrated, in fact, paraded by the fact that this is a go to Halloween movie, not yeah. just for myself, but for a lot of people. The Absolutely. second October rocks around, everybody's like, it's Beetlejuice time, let's go, you know? Yeah, and what's what's even more amazing about this film is that it's a film that is such a well-known Halloween film and then also such a great film that stands on its own that it's surprising that it actually contains very little references to any other pop culture. It really doesn't. It stands alone in a lot of its own stuff. It doesn't really reference other films. It doesn't reference other Halloween-based films. It is self-referential and... It kind of leads on to my pointless research for this week because the one n most noticeable reference in it is actually a reference to something that didn't exist at the time. Is this the little uh, Jack Skellington? Yes. So this week's pointless research, I'm talking about that in part, but I'm also actually talking about how Beetlejuice in part helped create Leica Studios. I'm so ready for this. So I'll start from the beginning because ultimately I'll be talking about a lot of other films beyond this but I wanted to start with Beetlejuice because this is the earliest it starts and this is the earliest the references start for the viewing audience. So in this film there is a subtle reference to The Nightmare Before Christmas. When Beetlejuice rises out from the ground with a merry-go-round on his head there is a visible skull that re resembles Jack Skellington. Jack Skellington, of course, being the titular main character of The Nightmare Before Christmas. If you didn't know, which I hope you probably do. The Nightmare Before Christmas came out in 1993. Beetlejuice came out in 1998. Uh, 1988. A whole <laughs> six years after it was referenced. And now you think, wait, that's interesting, because this film references something that doesn't exist yet. Not in commercial film yet, anyway. So what's interesting about this is that Tim Burton had envisioned making The Nightmare Before Christmas many years 
before even making Beetlejuice because it was a well, concept. Well, because it's a stop-motion film, isn't it? So it would take a really long time to finish anyway. No, that's not it at all. Oh, okay. So The Nightmare Before Christmas was a film that Tim Burton had come up with while he was in college. It was his magnum opus, his believed magnum opus of film when he was a university student, basically. So long before he even directed Beetlejuice, he was thinking of Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. He had okay. concepts, early designs, and also because Tim Burton learned animation while in college as well as film. When Tim Burton was finally famous enough after making films like Beetlejuice and was famous enough to make The Nightmare Before Christmas, he was just he was too busy to oversee the production of a stop motion animation because like you said, stop motion is going to take ages. It is a very time-consuming process. During the time that he wanted to make Beetlejuice, he was busy with directing Edward Scissorhands. Another iconic movie. Another iconic movie, yeah, exactly. So he had to lend the reins to someone else who could oversee the direction of a stop-motion animation, which would take a very long time. So to stand in his stead, he trusted his work to Henry Selleck, so a well-known stop-motion animator who Tim Burton trusted implicitly. So Henry Selleck oversaw the direction of Nightmare Before Christmas, and as a result... The Nightmare Before Christmas it is credited as Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas, not directed by Tim Burton. Mm, and it's yeah. a mistake that many people do make, but Henry Selleck actually directed it. From the success of Nightmare Before Christmas, Henry Selleck was then hired as a supervising director for Will Vinton Studios, which is a company that later became known as Leica Studios a year later. So as a result, without Beetlejuice, we may not have ever actually gotten animated films like Coraline, and Kubo and the Two Strings. So Wow. Oh, okay. Is, so that really is a like a ripple effect there. Yeah, there is a interesting ripple effect to that. I don't think they're necessarily directly linked. And of course, if you have studied research like I have, you all know that correlation does not necessarily equal causation. But it is an interesting timeline of events that I wanted to start with here because this is the first reference in film to Jack Skellington. So, it's a pretty fun coinkydink. Yeah, so when we eventually get around to reviewing The Nightmare Before Christmas, which I'm not saying we'll do anytime soon, so don't predict it, but <laughs> we will talk about other things related to The Nightmare Before Christmas because this is more related to a broader spectrum of films. Also, interestingly enough, Henry Selleck was actually, is actually said to be lined up to direct the Little Nightmares TV series, and I thought you'd be I, interested. I, whoa, whoa, there's a Little Nightmares TV series? There might be in the future. Oh, that's exciting. But obviously we're not a gaming podcast, so we're not going to talk any further about that. Until there's a TV series. And Until then there's a TV series, then we might talk about that, that if I we ever get around to talking about TV will series. to do with me. <laughs> yeah, but you never know. We might do TV series at some point. But that is my pointless research tied up. Just wanted to talk about how Beetlejuice helped build up to Laika. Because I thought that was quite interesting. That is super interesting. I really like that little tidbit. I didn't realize that Laika Studios was called Laika Studios. Yeah, so, I'm, yeah, pre, I'm not pre, necessarily pre. sure where that's from, but it's a very interesting choice. Cause yeah, really you sort nice of name. wonder why Laika. It really works. It kind yeah. of feels like 
lycanthropy in a way. Just to me, personally. That's where I go with yeah, the word Yeah, there Lyca, are a few film-based references to Leica. Leica was a camera manufacturing brand that has oh. existed for many, many years. Yeah, Leica, the camera production company, quite well known. There's a big story about that. When we get around to Coraline, I might talk about it. We'll see. But anyway, it is interesting that Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings, two very beautiful stop-motion animated films with very dark stories. So there is, a, there is definitely a link to Tim Burton's work, so I thought it would be interesting to explore that. But yeah. with all that said, we should probably jump back to Beetlejuice as we near the end of our in-depth discussion on it. We're just about ready to give our final thoughts, I would say. Thereabouts. I wanted to talk more in-depth about how a great deal of depth creates a greater enjoyment of a film in that this film is set pretty much in a house in one house with a few additional caveats and further points like the office and maybe the town and jupiter yeah in such a small space it could create such a broad story that could exist beyond more than the sum of its parts and i think sure a large part of that could be to could be given to the fact that the house the house's design changes from point to point but i also think it's because so much time and effort has been put into making every little bit of this film count exactly and the house really does look drastically different almost to yeah. the point where you don't even believe it's the same house the layout even feels different once they've done their renovations yeah, to it absolutely but it really does help lean into the depth of this movie and help you feel like it's taking you places even though it's all set in the same space yeah. and of course we're told it's set in the same space it's even one of the points is that when barbara and adam come home they go wow this place gets funkier and funkier as you go through yeah hang on this is our house and that really does build that sort of use of time dilation and the fact that we as the viewers and Barbara and Adam don't feel like they've been gone for that long but truly yeah. it's been three living world months so of course they've completely changed the house around yeah exactly and I think it is really good that in a part the pacing never feels it's fast but it never feels rushed but then enough detail is provided to, to the meat of the story and to the visuals that we see in this story that it never feels too rushed or too slow, but it always does come across as the story jumps from point to point, but in a linear and quite seamless way. Yeah, exactly. So that we can believe the time jumps and the time dilation but also the story jumps ahead quite quickly. And I think something that really leans into this, I know we haven't talked about it much, but with the time jumps and a lot of the back and forth, because there is actually a, f a lot of jumping from shots of one character to another in this movie, yeah. it all feels incredibly natural, and that just goes to how well the cuts between camera angles yeah. have been handled. I don't think there's been a movie where I've seen this many camera angle changes and cuts between scenes that hasn't felt almost whiplashy in a way. Yeah, it's very fluid and I guess the credit can go to Jane Curson, who's the editor for this film, but it is so well edited 
that it just flows from frame to frame. It's so well edited that you almost forget that it is edited yeah. for a moment while you're watching it. Absolutely, and it's a really nice credit to be able to give a feature-length film is that the editing is so good that it never feels jarring to see a cut. It always flows from each cut. And exactly. It, yeah, it was a note that I did make, I think we both made, that the cuts just seem seamless at points. Yeah, exactly. We were very much of the same alignment on this film. Yeah. But we I was, yeah. had pretty similar notes the entire time. I think we were both yeah, we were just very enamored by this film. Ballpark in terms of this in terms of what we liked about the film for sure mm -hmm. and even maybe what we didn't like one thing I was going to say so the film really grounds itself in a way that is quite fascinating because of course it is a supernatural film but it maintains balance with its rules quite seamlessly and as a result because it follows its own rules and the rules that it establishes in this film are always followed you never feel like oh that wasn't so, that couldn't happen that wasn't supposed to happen and I know you, you feel definitely. like you believe these points that yeah exactly I know in other movies we've had those sort of vibes where we've been like hang on yeah what the heck sorry what and then one of us will make a joke like oh movie magic don't worry about it or yeah. there's magic in this movie don't worry about it sort of yeah. trying to like joke that yeah it doesn't really make sense but the whole world's magical so who cares yeah, you really don't get this in this film this yeah. film even though it gives you so little about the world building and rules that it has yeah sticks to them so thoroughly that you don't really need to know the rules because you sort of by the fact that the film adheres to them so strictly, yeah. subconsciously get them anyway. Yeah, and mistakes are so much more noticeable in films that create rules and then don't follow them. But this film very strongly sets up these rules and then continues to follow them with a great strictness that is never forced upon the rest of the film. So the world building is very strict and the rule creation and following is very very strict but it also allows the rest of the film to be as loosey-goosey and as free planned as possible and as a result the film has just such a perfect balance in that section that it just gives off this air that the film could do anything and you'd believe it yeah exactly yeah. it Almost, you... Yeah, almost in a way in which the film is selling itself to us, like Beetlejuice is selling himself to the Maitlands. You get suspended between this sort of two different thoughts of the film, which is you don't really question anything that's going on because the logic is so sound and the rules are always followed, so you never have to question the rules. Yeah. But you also, in turn, especially with characters like Beetlejuice, who are so zany and unpredictable, are stuck in this... Well, anything could happen. They could pull a giant mallet out of their pocket at any second. This is cartoon logic. Like, it, you kind of get stuck between this is a very grounded place, and even though we haven't specifically been told the rules, there's definitely rules in place, yeah. to, man, this Beetlejuice guy could do anything, and I would just go with yeah. it. Like, <laughs> And it would make sense, yeah. Absolutely. And you just get stuck in this, well, what is he going to do next, you know? something ridiculous i'm sure but it all still makes sense within the film yeah and that'll lead really nicely on to our final points so monique do you have any final points about this film because i feel like i've said everything i wanted to say for sure 
you've definitely talked a couple subjects to death. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna make yeah, I did make that joke in the review as well, but I think it's <laughs> funny, so going in again. <laughs> I really, really like this, and I actually think that the sandworms specifically were quite a good use of Chekhov's gun. I yeah. am curious as to how Barbara managed to tame and ride one well, and get it. What hmm? I feel is what I believe is probably possibly the answer is that we're never actually given insight into what the sandworms do or what their behavior is actually like we know that they i guess eat ghosts but the ghosts don't die as we can tell that beetlejuice is still alive or dead alive at the end of the film mm -hmm. so it could almost be said that maybe barbara realized that or had come to terms with that and chose to just aim to tame it and as a result she did yeah, rather than being terrified of it, she was like, I'm already dead, yeah. what's going to happen, you know? Which is super interesting. I really enjoy that the worms come up and they're this big scary yeah, thing, and then in the end away. they're... Yeah, exactly, and then at the very end, they're not just a throwaway joke of, oh, if yeah. you go outside, you end up on Jupiter. They end up actually being the way that Beetlejuice is defeated in the film. And mm. as much as the time dilation makes the film feel a little bit rushed, this is also came out, this is also. This film is something that came out where films in general were shorter than films today. So... I can forgive the fast-paced nature yeah. because it's a 90-minute film and it really does so much with its runtime. Yeah, but with all of that said, we will close up for this this Halloween episode of Movie Magpies. We'll give you our hint. So the old hint for from last week was a teenager who considers ghosting her parents finds herself at an impasse when befallen by beings that are unlike what she is used to. So hopefully you had a few guesses at that. We did try and put the emphasis on ghosting. Yes, exactly. And I think that's important. I think we got to give our audience a few blatant hints. I don't think this that hint was very blatant, but it was definitely leaning more towards more obvious as we got closer to Halloween. It was a bit cheeky. Yeah, but now with the new hint, of course, as Beetlejuice is where we're leading off from, another Halloween movie where our heroes are met with ghosts and ghouls and rely heavily on a book that should never be read late at night. Hopefully, you can figure that one out. I really, really do want to know. Please hit me up on Twitter or Instagram and let me know. Have you been guessing? Have you gotten any of them right? I don't even care if you're like, yeah, I've gotten every single one right so far. I just want to know that people are like actually playing our game. Yeah. I think it's so fun. I enjoy watching will come up with the hints every week i haven't come up with one yet he is just much smarter than i am but um i don't know it's it's fun i really like it <laughs> yeah no it's a, a really fun little thing to do and i hope you guys are enjoying it too but with that mentioned our socials are if you want to reach out to us of course monique is at nexatai on both instagram and twitter and i am at graymas inc on twitter and at will underscore mortlock on Instagram. I'm more responsive on Instagram and Monique is more responsive on Twitter, so be sure to reach out to us. We really love hearing from you guys and of course be sure to follow us on Twitter because Monique always gives out uh, refresher hints for each episode on Thursdays and be sure to check out my Instagram because I'm constantly doing cinematography stuff on there and I'm also posting highlights on my story every so often. Whenever we find oh, something really gosh. funny to talk about, it's always up there so be sure to check they them are very out. Fun. <laughs> but with all that said, I'm going to close for this Halloween episode. Have a good night you all. 
and we'll see you next time.